a large social network needs to develop systems for ingesting, storing, and processing large volumes of data. Data engineering at scale requires multiple engineering teams that are responsible for different areas of the infrastructure. Data needs to be structured coherently in order to minimize the data cleaning process. Machine learning models need to be developed and deployed and iterated on at scale. Areas of the company which produce data need to be decoupled from the areas of the company which consume data so that engineers throughout the company can reliably build tools on top of these different large data sets. In our previous episodes about LinkedIn's data engineering, we covered two major components of LinkedIn's systems, the Kafka infrastructure and the LinkedIn data platform that's used by engineers to productively build data applications. Kapil Surlocker is a senior engineering director at LinkedIn, and he joins the show to discuss the bigger picture of LinkedIn's data infrastructure. Kapil works with teams across LinkedIn to understand the requirements for the products and the internal tools and translate those requirements into team structures and software platforms that let LinkedIn use data more productively. We discussed a wide range of topics, including engineering management, the modern data platform, and LinkedIn's adoption of public cloud. Full disclosure, LinkedIn is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Kapil Surlocker, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. So you're the Senior Director of Engineering on the data side of things at LinkedIn, is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So LinkedIn generates a ton of data every single day. Can you describe some of the major sources of data that are being generated across the product? Absolutely. So, you know, the first one is obviously when, you know, hundreds of millions of users are actively using the site and the mobile app on a daily basis. And through their interactions with the site, and they're doing all kinds of activities, they're updating their profile, they're forming connections, they are uh, liking and sharing posts, they're creating professional updates of their own. And all of this creates user-generated content, which mostly gets stored in our distributed databases and also gets served out of those distributed databases, right? So this is what I would call maybe mostly transactional kind of data. The other sources of data, which are in some ways much more uh, higher in volume, is one is what you would generally call as telemetry data. This is uh, data that LinkedIn applications, including the front end, are instrumented to collect on how the applications themselves are behaving and how that's impacting user experience. So that tends to be you know, an order of magnitude more data that is generally created as uh, logging events and then uh, funneled into uh, Kafka and then flows from there onwards. And the third big class of data is what we would call as derived data, right? So this is data that is not generated as source of truth data from either the databases or the event logging systems, but data that all our data producers and consumers, all your data scientists and AI engineers and other data uh, users, they are processing these data sets to produce new data sets, new insights, new machine learning models, and so on and so forth. And that tends to be uh, really a source of data that is, you know, like truly there is no upper bound to it because that's limited only by how much you can innovate, right? So broadly, I would say these are sort of the three classes of data. So your transactional data, your logging data, and your derived data. Some of the previous conversations I've had with LinkedIn data engineers emphasized the structure of LinkedIn's data engineering infrastructure on that event data. So when services are interacting, when users are doing different things, events are being generated and they're being written to Kafka. And you can do a lot of work with that event data. The event data is is very rich. It's proliferate. There's a ton of it. Can you explain how LinkedIn evolved this architecture with an emphasis on the events because not not every company has this kind of ev- focus on event data. I think that's an excellent question and I think to some extent it kind of follows the progression and growth of 
certainly LinkedIn in this case, but in general, you can think of it as any applies to maybe any web company as it grows through its usage and becomes sort of more sophisticated and mature, right? And the first phase is really much more existential where you're kind of building your core functionality and even to some extent proving that it works, that it's a viable uh, application that people are actually going to use, right? And at some point, you start to sort of go to that next phase where it's not existential anymore, but much more in terms of how do you make that experience much more relevant for users? How do we make it a more intelligent experience? Uh, how do we sort of generate that almost, if you call it magic, of when you see that user experience, you go, wow, I, I didn't realize that could be done, right? And to some extent, getting to that phase really requires you to start understanding user behavior and your applications and how your users interact with those applications uh, so that you can actually generate those insights and you know intelligence and magic. Without that, certainly you will have you know a user experience and a viable application, but certainly not going to be uh, probably a great one, right? So and that's where I think that focus on you know, kind of events. And when we talk about events or, you know, logging, it really comes from that motivation of really making those experiences for our members like truly delightful and magical experiences, right? And to do that, you need to have the base data to work from so you understand uh, what the users are actually doing with the site. And then your data scientists and AI engineers can go to work with that data to appropriately create those uh, member experiences. Describe in more detail how that event data gets turned into these derived data sets that you're talking about. Okay, so let's uh, start with the event or the data generation itself, right? So let's say you have users going to the site and they are interacting with the site and as a result, they're creating all sorts of source of truth data, like you change your profile to say, oh, here's a new degree in something that I received or a new certificate that I received. And you're also navigating the site. You're you're reading through people's blog posts, you're liking it, you're sharing it, you're scrolling through stuff. And all that is generating, quote unquote, the event data as well. Through different sources, so event data largely will throw, uh, flow through Kafka, right? So these events as they're being generated in the various applications and services, they're being emitted into Kafka. The source of truth data is basically being generated out of um, the source of databases. And all this data is getting collected periodically into the data lake, right? So we have, we built a, a framework called Goblin, which continuously ingests this data into our Hadoop-based data lake. And this data sets are then available to all the data scientists, AI engineers, and other application engineers to work with, right? So for example, if you're an engineer in the PYMK team, right, which is people you may know, which is one of the uh, very well-known applications that you, you find on the site, what those engineers are trying to do is to look at all this data and figure out which users should they be recommending to you to connect, right? So that you can expand your professional network. If you look at it in a different way, that objective is to create a machine-learned model to take the data sets as input and suggest new members for you to connect with, right? So that's an example of a derived data set where you would take all the source data from the databases, you would take all this uh, event logs and generate a model and then suggested pairings for those uh, suggestions to be then surfaced to the users. And this is just one example of a derived data sets that gets generated and it's literally, uh, you know, the function of the users that we have. So we literally have, you know, hundreds of thousands of such derived data sets that are currently in the data lake. I'd like to understand the problems that you see across the data infrastructure. So we've gotten a sense at this point for the fact that there is a lot of event data that's being created across the platform. And this event data is the raw data 
that data scientists are going to analyze and build machine learning models on top of. They're going to build applications like people you may know. They're going to build other recommendation systems, maybe a newsfeed recommendation system, all kinds of things they're, they're going to want to build on top of that. In order to facilitate that, you as the director of engineering, work on the data side of things, you need to build the right frameworks. You need to put the right platform teams in place. You need to make data discovery a priority. Tell me about the biggest challenges that you've had to solve in building a data platform that allows data application engineers to be productive. So when we talk about data application engineers, I think one important thing to note there is there isn't a single persona for it, right? There's an intense amount of diversity in kind of the personas which would use the data that would kind of fit that description. For example, we have application engineers who are trying to build insight-based experiences into their products that go on the site. You have data scientists who are trying to understand the user behavior to better kind of predict what kind of products and how the feature should get built. Uh, you have uh, AI engineers who are trying to use that data to bring to build machine learning models, which are going to make your products more relevant. Uh, you have your uh, sales analysts and you know marketers trying to understand their audiences to figure out in a data-driven way what are sort of their next best actions, if you will. And one of the biggest challenges in kind of building this data platform is really to understand the diversity of use cases that exists, right? Because each of these personas um, not only has a different use case, but they also differ significantly in sort of their technical expertise or the tool sets they're comfortable with. Just as an example, uh, take something like SQL. There are some personas who are much more comfortable expressing all their work in SQL and there are personas where that's just not enough and you need to do much more sort of more sophisticated processing. And one of the, the one of the challenges, and you know, we have built a portfolio of different tools and platforms and applications and infrastructure to cater to this wide and diverse audience, right? And I think that's kind of one of the one of the big challenges because there isn't a single answer for all. It's not one size fits all, but you have to kind of really tailor the solution to the audience that you're catering to, if that makes sense. How much do you try to standardize on tools that people can or cannot use? That's a really good question. And I think there are certainly aspects of the the infrastructure and the platforms where it really helps to sort of standardize. And on the other hand, there are some aspects and layers of your tooling and the rest of the stack where diversity might be not only okay, but it might even be encouraged to kind of satisfy certain needs of that user base, right? And let me let me take an example, right? So one of the first principles that you do want to have is make sure that all your data is easily discoverable, right? So when when you are a data applications engineer or a different persona that we talked about, when you start to solve a problem, you go through that phase of ideation where you want to discover data sets, what else exists, and then try to form that hypothesis around what is it that you want to do. And if you don't have all your data in a way that is easily discoverable, that really sort of impedes any further progress that you're going to make, right? So one of the things that we did is standardize on a few layers where you absolutely do need that standardization. So for example, all our logging data has to flow through Kafka, right? All our data that gets then ingested into the data lake will be available on the Hadoop-based uh, grid that, that all the data users use. Our data catalog, which is called Data Hub, makes it possible for all those users to easily discover and share data sets and reason about them in a very consistent way, right? So you pick up a data set, you want to know, hey, who owns these data sets? What are the SLAs that are associated with this data set? What are the operational health metrics? What are the quality issues? What is the lineage of these data sets? Which other data sets 
does this data set come from, right? Because most of what the data set that we have uh, turn out to be derived data sets. So in these layers, it is incredibly important to have standards and have that tooling which is quote-unquote allowed versus others which are not. When it comes to certain other parts of that ecosystem, it is perfectly fine to sort of encourage some amount of diversity, right? An example, I think, is processing frameworks. And today, if you look at what are the tools that are available to these data users uh, in order to interact with and process their data on the data lake, they have, you know, your legacy MapReduce-based toolkit. So you have your uh, MapReduce, of course, but then you have your Pig and Hive, which is, you know, as time goes, is getting less and less adoption because these are mostly legacy at this point. Uh, on the other hand, you have Spark, which is just exploding in popularity, right? Literally, most of the new jobs that the users are writing will overwhelmingly tend to be in Spark. Then for interactive tools, you have, and especially uh, with focus on SQL, you have tools like Presto, which is used for interactive uh, querying and dashboarding uh, and so on. Uh, we have a very fast OLAP engine called Pino that we built at LinkedIn and then we open sourced it. And that is used for surfacing extremely low latency insights and the ability to slice metrics by a very large number of dimensions, uh, if you will. And users are free to choose any of these processing frameworks based on their needs and preferences, right? Even when it comes to SQL, somebody might have a preference for using Presto. Another person might have a preference for using Hive or Spark SQL. And those are perfectly fine because as long as we have the standardization in the other layers that we talked about, they are still able to kind of share those data sets effectively, right? So if you process something in Spark, and you create a data set that is still just as discoverable and usable by your your other data users. So I think that's really kind of the guiding uh, principle that we kind of use uh, to decide which ones to kind of standardize and which ones to kind of open up and have you know a, a bigger menu of options, if you will. In the previous two interviews that I've done with the LinkedIn engineers, we talked about the Kafka infrastructure and the Hadoop infrastructure. And as you said, these are two things that are standardized. And they're really the backbone of how data is created and stored at LinkedIn. And again, we, we covered this a bit in the previous two episodes, but I think it's worth rehashing. Now, the extent to which I understand is that data that is occurring across the platform is getting logged in the form of events there's a massive number of events that are being written to different topics along Kafka. And periodically, maybe it's over the course of four days or some you know interval that's shorter or longer than that, that data, the event data, is being flushed out of Kafka and written to the HDFS cluster for long-term storage. Can you tell me more about the interaction the usage of Kafka and HDFS and how that forms the backbone of your data infrastructure? Sure. So Kafka, you know, and, and the way we think about it at, in LinkedIn, it certainly acts as kind of like a central nervous system, right? Uh, another way to think about it is it's really the flows and the streams that connect variety of data sources and collect all that data ultimately into a single location, right? And there are multiple different ways that people sort of publish their data into Kafka, right? So it could come through your web applications, it could come through your uh, mobile application, it can come through internal services, it can come through your internal apps. So, and it Kafka acting as that backbone of the central nervous system really makes it easy for all these different applications and services in a way to talk to each other, right? And Kafka has been always designed as, you know, kind of your low latency uh, data collection system, if you will. And Hadoop, on the other hand, really is designed for much longer retention of your data. And so all this data that goes into Kafka and the Retention of data in Kafka tends to be configurable, but given its use as more of a pipe, 
the retention typically tends to be on the order of days, right? So you can certainly configure to have a longer retention. Or if you have uh, Kafka topics that are very voluminous, then you would typically keep it to a relatively small number of days. And all this data is then sucked out of Kafka. And we have that framework that we talked about called uh, Goblin, which periodically ingests that data and stores it in HDFS, right? And that ingest mechanism uh, is actually fairly uh, frequent of the order of you know, tens of minutes, right? So Kafka would operate at much lower latencies in terms of uh, the end-to-end flows. And in Hadoop, we would have that data being collected and stored every few minutes. And then you have these processes that sort of, you know, compact that data. Uh, you have often data sets that get frequently updated. So you need to kind of dedupe it and compact it so that other applications can, can sort of use it. And that data then becomes... Uh, available for all these use cases to use for an extended period of time, right? So in some sense, it is accumulated constantly. And as those data sets continue to accumulate, and then the users uh, and their various applications would continue to process the data to generate, you know, whatever it is that they're doing. Okay. I know that LinkedIn is going to start moving some of its data infrastructure into the cloud. This is partly due to the the Microsoft acquisition and just partly due to the fact that the cloud is quite useful. Can you give me some insight into what parts of your data infrastructure you're planning to migrate into the cloud? So there's two aspects of it, right? One is there are already a few pieces where you, you kind of use pieces that are available to you on the cloud because it makes sense for you to do so. And you can do that at cost and be able to kind of scale it rather than having to kind of build everything from scratch instead of leveraging what is already available. The other part is uh, the transition that we are kind of moving into the Azure cloud, That's which is more of a longer term path for us to kind of move pretty much the entirety of our uh, footprint into the Azure-based cloud infrastructure. And there are sort of multiple reasons for it. One is, you know, and the foremost is actually not the fact that, you know, Microsoft acquired us. I'm pretty certain that we would have ended up in a cloud infrastructure even without it. But certainly, you know, being part of Microsoft, it makes a lot of sense because we can work with uh, those teams to kind of build it in a way that makes it easier for something of LinkedIn scale to move there as well, right? And Part of it is just the economies of scale, as large as LinkedIn itself is, being in a cloud environment just gives you economies of scale that are just at another uh, level, if you will, right? And whether it's hardware and, you know, especially with innovations that are hard, uh, happening in hardware with uh, GPUs and FPGAs and, you know, a larger cloud vendor can obviously, you know, keep pace with it much better. The fact that you have much larger pool of hardware that uh, cloud vendors have also means that elasticity becomes much more feasible. And this is especially useful for workloads that have a, a pattern that goes up and down, right? So at different times of the day, at different times of the week, when you have your peak periods, your holidays, the demand for uh, storage and compute can obviously change. And when you are in a cloud environment where you have that elasticity, if you will, it's much easier to sort of grow and shrink your footprint to sort of optimize your users as opposed to a on-prem deployment where you're constrained by the limitations of your physical hardware, right? And there are several other reasons for it, but that would certainly be, you know, those would certainly be one of the more common ones. This thought just came to mind. I'm not exactly sure if LinkedIn is this is the right vintage, but do you know if, if LinkedIn was the, was LinkedIn making its decision, its infrastructure decisions around the same time that Netflix went all in on the cloud. Do you know if, was there a period where LinkedIn was at all considering earlier to to go aggressively into the cloud or was it never really a, a serious consideration? On the Netflix one, I have to admit I'm not entirely certain on okay. the timeline. I think and certainly for the period I've been here, which is since late 2010, uh-huh. I believe Netflix was uh, the transition was 
a little bit after that, if I'm not mistaken. After, okay. But I was could like be 2011 wrong. I, I could be wrong. I'm not uh, entirely certain about Netflix. But from LinkedIn's point of view, and even in 2010, LinkedIn had been around for already for quite some time. Right. Uh, it was already operating out of its own data centers. Yeah. And you kind of build that expertise yeah. on how to operate that entire stack on your own, right? Yeah. So it was never an issue for LinkedIn in terms of, hey, you don't really have that muscle in order right, to do right, it. Right. And I think periodically we would always kind of look at in terms of just doing the due diligence. And this is a case where sometimes you see sort of the cost parameters sort of changing, but you look at how the cloud is evolving and how you are evolving and you and in the past, when we looked at it, we kind of decided that it wasn't quite the right time for us yet, Yeah. right? Just because of where different things are. Sure. And I think now where things are and where we see things going, it's definitely a much more sort of opportune time to make that, make that call. Well, you know, one thing about now is, one thing I'll say is, I do feel like we're getting to a point where the cloud providers are really starting to come out with tools where there is no open source tool. I mean, we're still in the early days of this, but there is no open source tool that is the same as X. Like something like, I don't know, BigQuery, right? Or like maybe managed TensorFlow from Google. Like, I mean, these are not the per most perfect examples, but it's very it's getting very easy to imagine. Like Cosmos DB, I don't know. It's getting very easy to imagine cloud providers offering software that is simply just better than anything that's out there in terms of open source. And by the way, partly because the operational burdens of some of these things are just so heavy that you really just want to outsource it. So that seems like something that's a newer uh, development. Are there any particular pieces of cloud infrastructure that you look at and you're like, that's pretty appealing and I don't think we would be able to roll our own? That's a really interesting question because I think there are definitely different considerations for where you are in the journey, right? And one of the biggest differences, and I think for, for LinkedIn versus, say, a smaller company or a startup, the considerations tend to be rather different in terms of, hey, what can you use as simply a managed service? Or where your needs and your scale is really at a different level compared to most where most of the market is, right? So for example, like if you look at our, our usage of uh, Kafka or even the the general size of the grid footprint and so on, it would really tend to be like, I don't even know at what percentile, right? Where you would imagine that maybe 99% of the users out there would have a much smaller scale, right? And that sort of becomes sort of a, you know, forcing function for you to really innovate and push the boundaries uh, in that space. Uh, when there are, you know, problems at a different layer where, you know, certainly when it comes to sort of just hardware resources or just kind of the virtualization layers where you just benefit from the innovations that are either happening in the cloud vendors themselves or are happening in the more broader sort of open source ecosystem, right? Where, you know, even the cloud vendors, they're sort of adopting these open source tools and customizing it to yeah. their cloud, yeah. right? Uh, things like on, on the virtualization and the container layers, you have things like Kubernetes, obviously. As you go higher up in the stack, you have, you know, both your proprietary querying systems, but then you also have your open source systems like uh, your Presto and your Spark and systems like that, if you will, right? So you definitely have that broader many of options in some cases to choose from. And to our earlier point, you will have use cases that fit into these different buckets. And you won't have uh, one thing that necessarily satisfies everything, especially in something as diverse as and complex as LinkedIn. But that certainly becomes an added advantage. Let's talk a bit about management. The director level role is somewhere in the VP territory or, or it's like at, depending on what kind of organization you have so you are a manager of managers in to my knowledge so you're probably spending a lot of time with other managers you're probably spending a fair amount of time seeing team level presentations tell me about the role of a director how are you spending your time what are your 
I guess your your objectives and key results and your the metrics that you're measuring for yourself. Let me maybe talk about that in the context of, I mean, as you put it, sort of that that growth and responsibilities, if you will, right? So when you are sort of managing, you're managing, you know, sort of a team of engineers, and then you're sort of managing multiple different but related teams of engineers, which is, you know, when you are kind of a senior manager role and so on and so forth. And as a director, then you're managing sort of managers. Uh, as a senior director, you're kind of managing, you know, teams that are managed themselves by multiple directors and so on. And as you sort of go through these, I mean, ultimately, the thing that doesn't really change is in any role that you have, you're always focused on, hey, what are LinkedIn's priorities at this point, and what is it that you can do to make sure your broader organization is aligned with those uh, goals and make basically LinkedIn successful. How you approach it and how think how you do it day to day obviously has to change based on uh, your role and kind of that that function and the size of the organization that you deal with. And in some sense, as you're kind of uh, broadening your responsibility, you're much more focused on achieving those results through people and focusing on sort of coaching, you know, the folks that are obviously directly reporting to you, but also finding opportunities in kind of the broader organizations to sort of collaborate and achieve things that you may not be able to do simply by yourself within your organization, right? And I think that's sort of, I think, one way to kind of look at it and evaluate that. I'm not entirely sure that that aspect of uh, you know fostering collaboration is captured in sort of metrics if you will but you know qualitatively and subjectively that's certainly what what you strive for and that collaboration that's probably important because there's a lot of at a company as big as LinkedIn there's a lot of areas of the company that are not necessarily known throughout the organization and there's tribal knowledge right and so that stuff gets captured in your brain and if somebody mentions some problem to you oftentimes you're going to say oh you know sharon can help with that like why don't you go talk to sharon they're like i have no idea who sharon is can you, <laughs> can you intro me so yeah it seems like a you know connect in company connector seems like an important role what have you learned about management since becoming a director? Just to go back to your previous question, and I think as you were segueing into this one, part of it is also, I think, how we think about it as a company, right? Because there are application teams that are directly building products at LinkedIn, and then there are more what we call horizontal teams that are focused on sort of enabling and sort of a wider impact on the organization. And that's a leveraged decision. Right. So like we only have one Kafka team at LinkedIn. We only have one Hadoop team at LinkedIn. We have only one team that builds experimentation engine. We have only one team that builds your data portals and data hub, for example, right? Which is the discovery portal that we talked about. And this is an organizational choice in some ways, right? You you certainly have many organizations that don't necessarily leverage it in the same ways, and then you end up with silos where you have multiple teams sort of doing overlapping things or sometimes doing conflicting things, sometimes doing redundant things. And part of that organization design also means that horizontal teams like my own have a ton of different partners, right? So it really places the emphasis back on collaboration where it's extremely important to drive results for the company as a whole and to enable the organizations which depend on you to achieve the results that they want to achieve, right? So, you know, I think there's, there's certainly a, a ton that you know, I've, I've learned as a manager over the years. I think the, the, the two things I would probably call out as, you know, things that would stand out is one, certainly, you know, like focus on the larger aspects of collaboration because I think I'm, you know, certainly misquoting it and we can correct that if I got that wrong. And then I think if they say, if you want to go fast, you go alone. And if you want to go far, go together, right? That's something right. like that, right? No, no, it's, and, that's, that's, uh, that's really something that that you have to really internalize because a lot of the times your your inclination as engineers is, and certainly, you know, being sort of agile is to 
you know, get things done very, very quickly. But when you focus on the long term, it's really about uh, not just focusing on the relationships, but thinking about how do you achieve the right outcome uh, in the long term by influencing a number of other teams and organizations that can then partner and go along with you, right? And the second one, I would say, and you know, probably kind of in the similar vein, is really to focus on the people, right? And uh, certainly the collaboration is the other aspect of it. But as you, certainly when you are a, a manager at any capacity, but certainly as, as you grow, the results that you can achieve in that role are directly dependent in some ways. That's the only way you, you would get those results is by investing and in, in growing in individuals, right? And, you know, it's certainly at LinkedIn, I've been lucky to work with, you know, folks who are really absolutely the best in their fields and, you know, just being fortunate to work with them for several years now. And when you do that, you kind of realize the what you get through by constantly investing in those those individuals and also those relationships. To return to the technical, much of what we talked about earlier was about building a platform to allow data application engineers to be productive. And one of the modern systems for building data applications is the realm of machine learning. And building and deploying machine learning models is not easy. Backtesting those models is not easy. Updating those models is not easy. Tell me about the process of developing machine learning infrastructure and machine learning standards within LinkedIn. So machine learning is certainly, you know, very rapidly you know, evolving field and, you know, the pace of innovation is is just staggering, right? Where, you know, you have new frameworks uh, coming up constantly, uh, new frameworks for deep learning and new frameworks pretty much to the entire life cycle of machine learning. Now, given the space that it touches, we actually have a effort at LinkedIn called ProML, which stands for Productive ML, which really aims to kind of standardize the tooling across the board through that entire life cycle of machine learning, right? So how do you kind of build models in a consistent way? How do you deploy those models? How do you monitor and then update those models? Now, I'm not necessarily the best person to kind of go into the details of like ProML itself. That's an effort that, you know, is is a big priority for us across the company, right? And that touches various parts of the ecosystem, certainly including your your, your offline infrastructure, your online uh, serving systems, your, you know, deployment tooling, and so on. And that is something that, you know, we've work, we have been working on for a while. It is you know, seeing uh, fantastic results in production. And if we haven't talked about it publicly, I'm pretty sure that that we would. Yeah, I think someone like Bichang is probably a much better person sure, to no talk problem. about product ML. From 2010 to 2014, you were working on some internally built data systems at LinkedIn. And I've had previous conversations about Pino. And uh, with Carl, I just talked about Dali. So LinkedIn has a history of building new data infrastructure tools internally. Now, we're in this time where there's so much great open source stuff you can take off the shelf. You're starting to use cloud services. There's so many cloud services one could use. Why are you still building brand new tools? That's a really good question. So let me let me start with talking about open source, right? And at least certainly for for the time I've been here, LinkedIn has been a very very strong advocate of open source, right? And and that's that's super exciting for a number of reasons. But being an open source advocate is is goes both ways, right? So there are definitely cases where we have built a lot of systems and then for the most part open source them, and in some cases when we haven't it's largely because we didn't necessarily prioritize it upfront and then it became sort of much harder to open source it rather than a desire not to open source. And in many cases, we have adopted tools that have been built elsewhere and open sourced. And we certainly, you know, kind of looked at those and then decided that leveraging those was was much better, right? And I think as uh, the years have passed, I think 
I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say that that balance has changed, but I think the philosophy of making the decision, I think, has stayed roughly the same, right? Which is, I don't think we have, or or rather, uh, in every case where we have built new infrastructure and new tools, it's very consciously having looked at the ecosystem and then placed bets carefully around where we see that ecosystem going and whether we see our needs being well addressed in that open source ecosystem always, right? Just going back in time, uh, you referred to, you know, the early days of LinkedIn infrastructure in 2010 and so on. And if you go back at the time and our immediate problem at the time and one of the first projects I worked on at my time in LinkedIn was to build a distributed database layer that would help us reduce our dependency on Oracle, right? And for, certainly for cost reasons, but also for operability and uptime reasons and so on. And when you look at it today and you go, yeah, you have Cosmos DB on the Azure cloud and you have a ton of other options. If you go back to 2010, there were much fewer options that were out there. And certainly the options that were there weren't necessarily built for LinkedIn scale. And we actually, you know, kicked the tires on a few to make sure that, you know, when we were making those decisions, we were making them very consciously because these are important bets, right? And you would need to invest time and resources for multiple years to to get the benefit. If you look at data processing systems that we have looked at recently, you would look at something like Spark or something like Presto. And there really isn't a reason why you wouldn't uh, adopt those with the intention of then enhancing them for your reasons, right? And every time we have picked up uh, something from the open source ecosystem, we have invested in those to first meet our needs, uh, certainly of scale, but also other aspects, and then given it back into the open source community, right? So we have done it with Spark, we've done it with Presto, and we'll continue to do it with the other tools that we would adopt. Even so, you would find gaps where they're not very well addressed in any of the existing solutions. And I think Pino was a great example of it, right? There's a ton of analytics or OLAP engines out there. But the specific problem that we were looking at when we were uh, when we decided to build Pino was to have an extremely low latency OLAP system because we wanted to build side-facing products using those. And when I mean low latency, we're talking about uh, milliseconds. We're not even talking seconds, which most of your interactive analytics databases talk about, right? So when we looked at the ecosystem and we said, okay, let's try, you know, things that are out there and see what works. And there really wasn't anything that gave you guarantees of millisecond level performance when they were dealing with OLAP. You found tons of systems which would do queries in seconds, but that simply wasn't good enough. So that is an example of where you make a very conscious choice of investing uh, and building a solution because there isn't anything that meets your needs. And in Pino, that's exactly what we did after we built it. We scaled it internally to you know literally hundreds of use cases, and then we put it back in the open source, right? And that allows a lot of other companies in and outside the valley to use a system like that to to satisfy their own analytics needs. So I definitely see that sort of balance staying the way staying that way because we'll always have linkedin being you know somewhat unique in its setup as a professional graph and because of the scale and because of that uh, network aspect we'll always have use cases that are not entirely addressed by what is out there and when we see those it's not building infrastructure for the sake of building it but because we do see a gap in that ecosystem what's been the hardest part of scaling linkedin's data infrastructure from a scalability point of view, I would say there are two aspects, right? One is when you look at the infrastructure itself and you think about, hey, what is it that you need to do to scale it? And the other one is more organizational. So I'll talk a little bit about both. Uh, when I talk about infrastructure, what I mean is uh, we are at a scale where we don't have the luxury of you know, running into problems that a lot of people have run into and solved already, right? Uh, when you are, and it often happens when you're adopting some new tool for the first time, and as you go through that scaling aspect, it's great because other people have sort of used it, and you have that luxury of, hey, 
some of those issues are already taken care of. But when you get into the scaling aspects where very few companies have, you start to discover problems that really there is no way the other way of discovering, right? And we ran into this with Hadoop, we ran into that with Yarn, we ran into that with Spark, and all these uh, cases, the interesting aspect is because those problems show up only at a certain scale, you don't even have a very good way of kind of testing it because to test it, you would have, you would need a large enough footprint to just just test it with. And you, you know, nobody has few tens of thousands of machines just lying around for free uh, for testing, right? So we actually invested in a lot of tools that kind of helped us uh, kind of simulate those results and test it in, with a smaller footprint. So on Hadoop, we built something called Dynamometer that allowed us to test, hey, what would your cluster look like in its performance aspects if it was 10,000 nodes? What it, would it look like if your single cluster was 15,000 nodes? And you can kind of then get an idea of what it looks like well before you actually get there. So you can start solving those problems, right? So that's a more, you know, the technical aspects. The other parts of scaling is scaling from an organizational point of view, right? And that turns out to be true, especially in kind of the analytics and big data ecosystem, because the scaling problems are one function of your your user base, of, of your member base and the, the traffic on the site. But the other aspects of it come from your internal user base, right? If you have tens of data scientists that are trying to you know, use your data versus you have hundreds or thousands, it's a very different scaling aspect organizationally. As they become more productive, they're also experimenting more and more. They're innovating more and more, right? So like if you go back 10 years, we didn't really have an experimentation system. We didn't need an experimentation system even at that time because the site was just so small, right? And today where we are, you wouldn't even think about pushing significant changes to the site unless they were behind an experiment. And we have, you know, we built an internal system called uh, T-Rex, which also kind of illustrates a point that you were earlier asking about, hey, you know, what is the reason to build such a tool? And there is very few companies that kind of do it at a scale that we do it and as rigorously as we do, right? And uh, we built the tool called T-Rex, which is used for all our targeting, ramping, and experimentation needs. And that cultural shift that comes with it of basically saying that, no, we're not really pushing significant changes to the site unless we have an experiment behind it and we can clearly see the impact of releasing those changes, releasing those changes on your, your business metrics, right? So that is kind of a organizational and a user behavior aspect of scaling as well, and uh, which is something that we have also gotten uh, much better at over the years. Has cost management ever been a significant issue? Cost management, I would say yes and no. Uh, yes, in the sense that, yes, of, there's obviously, you know, it's something that you pay attention to, and especially in the big data space, because of you know, there's multiple uh, factors that affect your scaling. You always have to be conscious around how quickly are you growing. No, in the sense of, I think what really matters is not the cost itself, but what are you generating out of that cost? So the ROI of that investment becomes much more important to pay attention to. So one effort that we've invested in significantly, something that we call resource intelligence, right? And the idea is really not just around reducing costs, but to really raise the visibility of where are you investing your hardware resources, right? What are the systems or the applications that are getting use out of it so that you can make rational decisions around what are the places where we may be getting lower ROI as opposed to places where we get high ROI. And then you can really invest your efforts into whether it might be cost reduction or it might be improve the efficiency through investments in the software layers and so on and so forth. You can really then focus on where those efforts are really worth spending. Tell me something new that you learned about data engineering in the last year. I think the most interesting thing about data engineering, certainly in the last year, but also I think maybe in, in the recent uh, past, is 
I think that role and that function itself is going through a transformation, right? And if you look back, you know, sort of further back in time, the practice of data engineering might have involved using sort of very kind of your traditional tools. And LinkedIn, we certainly had those, right? So, you know, your your most of your function was really about, oh, you have your Teradatas and Oracle Data Warehouse before that, and you have your traditional analytics tools of, you know, MicroStrategy and Tableau and so on and so forth. And the function really is about saying, hey, how do we use these existing tools to sort of meet the needs uh, in terms of building those reports and dashboards and so on, right? And as our ecosystem has evolved to have more sophisticated needs, and certainly if you go back in time, using machine learning and using AI to the extent that we do today didn't certainly exist back then, right? So all these innovations push you towards, hey, what are the innovations that need to happen in the infrastructure and the toolings and the platform space, right? And I think that pace is only going to increase, right? As, you know, the innovations and the need for it also, and, you know, in, in the AI and ML space increase, what it means is it's going to drive innovations in the infrastructure, in the tooling layer much more aggressively, right? And that is, uh, it is certainly changing the function of what what how we think about data engineering. And in the years to come, I'm pretty certain that we'll continue to drive those changes. Kapil Surlocker, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Jeff. It's been great chatting with you. LinkedIn is a software company with the goal of creating economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. LinkedIn is hiring data scientists, software engineers, researchers, and many more roles for its engineering team. To find out more about the problems that LinkedIn is solving and the teams that are solving these problems, check out engineering.linkedin.com, where you can read about culture, open source projects, and hard problems that LinkedIn has worked through and blogged about. Thank you to LinkedIn for sponsoring the show and for creating software that I use every day. Every day.